Nation, there's so many reasons out there to start taking notes on the Rocketbook. I'll list a few. One, it's a reusable notebook. When you've finished with your notes and you've scanned them into their app, you can simply just moisten the page and then wipe off with a microfiber and you can reuse that page over and over again. The best feature about the Rocketbook is you can search your notes. You will never lose a note again, which means you don't have to go back and do the valuable work you've already done because you can't find it. It is absolutely one of my favorite tools. Go to our affiliate link, scalinguph2o.com forward slash Rocketbook to take 15% off your first order of $20 or more and never lose a note again. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O, Nation, welcome to a brand new episode, episode 256, and just amazing that there's 256 episodes out there. In fact, there are actually more for those of you that have stayed with us through the entire five years of producing this podcast. You know, I tried to get creative in some of our numbering. If it was on a particular topic, I would have a episode 10.1 and 0.2, and I don't know what the heck I was doing. But anyway, we try to keep it simple now, and each new episode gets a brand new number. So if you were to count, I'm willing to bet that we're probably at least in the 280s, probably even a little bit higher than that. And when I look at all the things that I have learned on this podcast It's just been amazing. I mean, just talk about how to create this podcast. I didn't know anything about podcasting before I started doing this podcast. Started learning a whole bunch about how to produce a podcast. Learned a bunch about the technology. And then there's so many things that I learned on how to interview people. How to make sure that I was giving the Scaling Up Nation what it needed, how I was making sure that I was staying relevant. All of these things was to uncover the fact that I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was a question that somebody posed to me, I want to say at least 12, 15 years ago. His name is Tim Fulton. He's a really big part of my life. I call him my business coach. And I met Tim at a conference, and then that became a class that I took from Tim. And then today, Tim actually coaches me on a regular basis with trying to encourage me to learn things that I didn't know I didn't know. But he asked me that question well over a decade ago, and I just love that question. With the podcast, I didn't know what I didn't know, so I started going on the internet trying to figure out what it is I needed to know so I could give you a podcast that you wanted to listen to. In water treatment, I do that all the time. What don't I know I don't know? Maybe I'm running a new test, never run it before, don't have any experience with it. I don't know what the different reagents are blended with. I don't know how they react to a possible interference. I don't know what are some of the things that they might do. Maybe they turn different colors if there's different interferences out there. Whenever I'm testing for something I'm not familiar with, maybe a customer asked me to test something that we don't normally test for, I ask myself, what do I need to know about this test so I can expect some things maybe I don't plan on expecting? So when's the last time you've done that? What are some things that could possibly go wrong What are some ways that some interferences could happen when you run a test the first time? And I also apply that to pretty much anything that I do. So here's my question for you. Do you ask yourself, how do you know that you don't know something? And then how do you find out what you need to know? It's a question that just really energizes me because there's so much information out there. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, how do you know when you don't know something and how are you going to find that something out? 
You know, one of the ways that we try to find things that we don't know, or maybe we just need to expand what we do know a little bit further, is with our friend James McDonald. So here's a brand new Thinking on Water with James. Welcome to Thinking on Water with James, the segment where we don't give you the answers, we give you the topics and questions for you to think about, drop by drop. Now let's get to it. In this week's episode, we're thinking about what alternative water sources can potentially be used for cooling tower makeup. City water and well water are often the first two makeup water sources that come to mind for a cooling tower. But what are some others? One person's waste is another's treasure, they say. Are there any waste streams going down the drain right now that could be recycled to the cooling tower for makeup? Do they require any pretreatment? What challenges would these alternative makeup water sources pose once in the tower? Would the current water treatment program need to be altered in any way to accommodate them? Are these alternative sources reliable? What volume of water can they provide? Take this week to think about the possibility of using alternative water sources for cooling tower makeup. Be sure to follow hashtag TOW22 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O to share your thoughts on each week's thinking on water. I'm James McDonald, and I look forward to learning more from you. Well, thank you, James. You know, James is one of those people that is always helping out our industry. And if you ever tune in to one of our hangs, you are sure to see James McDonald. James McDonald is almost on every single hang. And our next hang is going to be on July 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, We have people all over the globe that join us and we get to meet new people on the hang. It's only one hour of your time and you never know who you're going to meet on the hang that can help you with a problem that maybe you don't even know you have yet. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang to reserve your spot today and it will not cost you a dime, just an hour of your time, and you will be so glad you spent that hour meeting some new people in the water treatment industry. Nation, in addition to the question, what don't I know I know, I also like to ask the question whenever I meet somebody new is, who do I know that you want to meet? And I've introduced so many people that way. Well, if you were to rewind many years, I want to say this was 1995, maybe. I think I'm pretty close, but that's the first time I met our guest that's coming on today. And I know you are going to enjoy this interview. Here it is. My lab partner today is Bruce Ketrick Sr. of Guardian CSC. Bruce, I can't believe it's been five years and you're finally on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm obviously on top of the list, so I really appreciate that. We have been trying to do this forever, I think, and we finally got the stars to align. Bruce, I don't know if there's anybody in the water treatment community that has not heard your name, but just in case there's one person out there How would you describe Bruce Ketrick to the audience? Bruce Ketrick is an individual that got into the water treatment industry in 1974 and turned around yesterday and said, well, now I know how to afford late, now I know how to sell. I built a company. I've worked for a number of different majors and none of it was planned. It just happens. You just take one step at a time and you end up there. You wake up in a blink of an eye. It all went by. It all went by. Bruce, I'm curious, how did you originally get into the water treatment industry? Well, I was in college. I was working summers in Norfolk Harbor, industrially cleaning bilges, fresh waters of Navy vessels. And one of the vendors worked for a company called Gamble. And we were talking, and he knew I was graduating, and recommended I interview with Gamble Chemical, which I did. And they hired me originally to be a trainee, one of their first sales trainees, uh, both industrial and marine. And the idea was I rode ships, I did cleaning underway, I did resin cleaning, I did product formulation and testing, I did everything they asked me to do. 
with the idea of when a sales opportunity opened up, that's where I'd be. And it happened in New Jersey, so I ended up being an industrial sales instead of Marine. And in 1973, when I got out of college, the Vietnam War had ended. There was a flood of people coming back from Vietnam, not a lot of jobs. So you took the first of those offered. So Bruce, did you did you always want to own your own company? Was this something that you just said, you know, I, I got to do it? No, not really. I liked working for the companies I worked for. I went from gambling to bets when gambling got, pur- got purchased and realigned. I worked for bets for a few years. I had the opportunity to go with a company called Parolin. And within three years, I went from a salesman to the U.S. operations manager and ran their U.S. operations, production, sales, uh, the entire gambit until 1987 when they got purchased again. And when they got purchased again, the company that came in had a president that didn't think a 37-year-old man that knew how to run a national company should be kept around. So I got fired for producing too well. And at that point in time, uh, one of my distributors was looking to start his own water treatment company. He was an equipment supplier. And we kind of worked out a deal, which as I look back on it now, I must have been extremely desperate and started from nothing, basically with two accounts, Harley Davidson and York Hospital were the first two I had. That was it. And you still have those accounts, don't you? Yes, I do. That is saying something. We don't lose a lot, but we, you know, we're like everybody else. We try. Bruce, what do you think the biggest difference is from working with somebody to owning a company, other than the obvious? Working for somebody means you do the best job you can and you hope you read what they want. Owning your own company is taking a look at what do I need to survive and make the paychecks next week. It's a totally different concept. When you own your own company, you work for your employees. People don't think of it that way. They Someone that hasn't owned their own company will think, well, these employees work for you. You work for your employees because your employees are the reason you succeed. Those people are your family. If you don't work for them and worry about them being taken care of every day, you won't have them. And if you don't have them, you don't have a company. Knowing everything that you do now, would you do it over again? Probably. I would probably do it a lot smarter. I say to people all the time, they say, how do you know these things? I said, well, when you make a mistake, you never forget it. And I said, I've made enough mistakes now that I even hear the two by four coming at me before they start to swing. (laughs) Because over time, experience is what it is. You learn. And there's a lot of things I'd have done different from when I first started. But you're younger, you're naive. You think things are going to go the way you want them to go. And they just tend to go the way they go. What's one of the biggest changes that you've seen in our industry since you've been in water treatment? I don't think we have four days. <laughs> so, product development, uh, the way people sell. We've gone from selling by the pound to being energy engineers, where we're actually looking how to maximize the energy of a facility. Uh, we've gone from, in the 70s, we sold chemical. Boilers blew down to 10 cycles, so fuel was cheap. After the oil embargo, fuel wasn't cheap. So that's when we started energy savings, blowdown savings. We still sold by the pound. We Chemical didn't talk to equipment. Equipment didn't talk to chemical. In today's world, it's a marriage. You have to condition the water as best as possible with equipment, pretreatment equipment, reverse osmosis, deionization, whichever you use, and then polish it with chemistry to give the customer the most economical program and the best energy savings. And it's really all about energy. It's not about the product. Is there something you say that we've lost over the years? Did we do something better back in the 80s than we do today? Back in the 80s, we were more of a fraternity than we are today. There weren't that many of us. It wasn't as big as it is now. And, you know, you had your competitors you liked, the ones you didn't like, like we do today. There's no question about that. But on the whole, we acted on a different level. It's become much more commercialized today. We're seeing the change from, we used to call it the six-pack. There were six major companies, and they pretty much dominated the industry with a few independents. They purchased each other. They spun off people. They've been purchased back and forth. And now they've churned into very large entities, and there's not six of them anymore. Uh, And independents have filled that gap. In doing so, we lost a lot of the humanity we had 
And there's a very definite separation between different groups and the way to look at things. A lot of communications have been lost, even though we're in the, in the basic era of communication, where everyone can talk to anyone at any time like we're doing now. People in major companies, and we see this when you interview people, have no idea what AWT is doing or what we do or the technical training. But the only one that uh, seems to have any concept of that is Chemtree. The rest of them, it's amazing the difference. Uh, there used to be very good training programs in the major companies. They trained their people very well technically. But when they started purchasing each other and started getting people spent off, they were with major competitors. So they changed from technical training to sales training and moved the technical inside so it's controlled by a few people. And we find we hire people from the majors, and they are very well trained in a specific area but they have no clue about general technology, product application, what a phosphonate is. They just know a product. It's changed dramatically. That personal touch is, is really gone, and now it's all about apps on your phone or on your computer. But as you have seen when you teach math, the basic concept of math and the formulas is almost like magic to people today. When it used to be, that's what we did. Well, Bruce, you alluded to the Association of Water Technologies. Uh, I believe you were one of the founding members. Is that correct? Not exactly. I was one of the first couple dozen. Ten people started that company originally. And the next year after they started it, they started recruiting people to bolster it. And I was in that, shall we say, the second phase. One of the first two dozen, if you want to say. So you got a phone call, somebody, I'm guessing it was Chuck Brandvold, he nope. pitched you Denny on this? Clayton. Denny Clayton. Denny Clayton. I was handling a paper mill for Denny Clayton because he knew me from past experiences and called me up and said, we formed this company uh, or this, I'm sorry, organization, and we'd like you to join. And of course, I was pretty much a two-man outfit at the time, barely keeping my head above water. It's like, hey, I don't have time to do this. He says, you don't have time not to do this. So... We always went to the IWC in Pittsburgh because that was the water conference. And the majors had their suites and the rest of us were kind of at the table waiting for crumbs to fall off. And you went there anyway. So we went there and after the meeting, we meet in an auditorium, 20 people. And we're forming this organization so that we can offer insurance. But we got to do more than just offer insurance. We have to do everything else. So... Denny said to myself and Rusty Hill, who was there at the time, uh, I'd like you guys to be in the technical department because you both came out of technical. I said, oh, okay, what does that mean? Don't worry about it. We're just starting out. Just do it. To which I was then introduced to everybody as the chairman of the technical committee, which didn't exist. So that's kind of how it all started. Well, I met you because you were leading that technical committee, and I did the math. I want to say it was in 97 when training was in Atlanta, and I sat down at an empty table. It was my first AWT function ever, didn't know anybody, and then you sat down on the other side of me, and Jay Farmery sat down on the other side, and you talk about an intimidating lunch. I was like, how am I ever going to hold my own with these two water treatment Jedi? That was, that was the first time we met, and you asked me, I think I'd just take a bite of sandwich, and you said, so what do you think? And I had no idea how to respond. I don't know what I said. Hopefully, it was halfway coherent. Do you remember that conversation at all? I remember that conversation. I don't remember what you said. But it must not have been too incoherent because we're still talking. <laughs> so, and then it was uh, it was that conference that I saw all of you guys speak. Of course, uh, Jim Lukinich. I just thought he was just incredible with how he's able to entertain and teach. And uh, I remember thinking, I really want to do what these guys do. I want to have a command of this information in a way that I not only understand it for myself, but I understand it in a way that I can explain it to other people so they could understand it. And it was that day that I decided that I was not worthy to do it, but I wanted to become one of your trainers. Well, you've done really well at that. So congratulations. 
So, and I'm trying to remember, um, I believe there was, uh, I, I want to say that I said I wanted to do this and you said, well, you need to get involved in the committee. Right. And it was working on the sidelines through the committee. And I want to say you came to me one day, Colin was starting to do sales training, so he wasn't able to do calculations anymore. And you said, well, hey, I've got an opening. You're not going to want it, but it's math. And I said, yes. And you said, yes. And I found out later you actually like math. So I got lucky. You couldn't have asked me to teach anything uh, more than than I think I would have wanted to do. That allowed me to take the information, really make it my own. And, and the challenge was there, the topic that nobody wanted to do, that nobody wanted to sit through during training, how could I actually make that fun? How could I make that entertaining? How could I make it so people actually had handles that they could bring home when they left the class? So it was, it was a great challenge. I still aspire to do that. I get some good feedback uh, after I do present. I don't think I've mastered it by any means, but I really want to thank you for the opportunity because it is something I look forward to each and every year. Well, no, I want to thank you because you do an exceptional job. Colin and I did the math before that, and I didn't want it back. And you do exceptional at it, so. I appreciate that, Bruce. That, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you for that. I remember uh, I only missed one technical training, and that was when my father passed away. Right. And then I remember you were going through my slides. And I, of course, when we talk about boiler calculations, I use the reference of Dr. Evil, where he's he's doing the one million with his pinky mm-hmm. in his mouth, just to remind people that that's not the right answer. If your boiler is not producing one million pounds of steam, you still have to do a percentage off of that. And we both know that there are CWT test question answers out there that if you forget that step, there's still that answer available for you to pick. So I put that up there as a result. And uh, you click the next slide and this Dr. Evil popped up and you're like, what the heck is Blackmore teaching you guys? I did think that, yes. <laughs> I, having not seen the script, I looked at that and went, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> So several people reported back that you handled it very well. I really wish that I had a recording of that. Well, the stuttering was probably the best part of the whole thing. (laughs) So, Bruce, you and Rusty were charged with creating the original technical committee. Obviously, people know what it is today. What is it, 30 years in the making now? Oh, more than that. Okay, so so 30-plus years in the making It is the crown jewel that AWT does twice a year. People go to the training. uh, They keep coming back because there's just so much valuable information. It didn't start there. How did that start? Well, it started a couple of years in from when I joined. And again, it was Denny Clayton. He was president, I think, at the time, or had just been president. And he said, one of the problems we have is we have very talented people, but nobody recognizes that we have a lot of people who need training. And training requires some ability and some monetary capability to be able to put it together. Well, the independents, most of them were small companies, individually couldn't do it. But a handful of us had been trainers in the past, had worked for major companies. So we put together a group in Chicago to do the first one. We all showed up with our transparencies because this is well before PowerPoint. You might have to explain that technology to our audience. Uh, it was an overhead projector where the light shone through a transparency and put a picture on a screen. Well, the nice part about it is you could write on with a magic marker if you wanted to and show people things without using a whiteboard. But there was no automation. It was basically talking to a group with a lot of transparent slides. And to say that it was a complete disaster was probably being kind. Many of the speakers that were in the first one, well, actually, I'm the only speaker left in the first one, Many of them were very intelligent, uh, spoke in a monotone, spoke at a level where everyone sat there going, I have no idea what we're doing here. And we gradually transitioned through there and got the farmeries and the luck images and the the people that are now a main part of this. Colin Frank came in much later. But it started with a need to teach the industry and to close that gap between the majors and the independents, which... I feel now with the CWT and the training we have, 
we've closed that gap. And I don't see the majors, except for their size, having anything technically better than where we are right now. Bruce, people have asked me how I've decided, you know, what math equations we're going to use. And of course, I teach the ones that are on the CWT examination. But how did I decide to go down certain routes? How did I decide to, to use certain analogies? And basically, how did I design my course? So I'm curious with you, you've done so much of the AWT architecture for the training course. How do you decide what you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it? Well, I was educated in the majors originally, uh, and also with a international marine company. So I kind of, when I went from the international company to the major, I looked at how differently they did things, got to the same answer. And we look at this, this the same way. I look at it from the standpoint of, I'm not teaching Suez, I'm not teaching Echolabs, I'm not teaching Chemtree. Uh, I want to look at the overall industry in general generically, uh, which is why the TRTM was built that way, generically, and say, how can I get this information across to people in a generic means, in which case, you notice we don't talk about products, we talk about raw materials. We talk about different types of boilers and the problems they have, different types of cooling towers and the problems they have, different types of water and what to expect, how you can calculate the proper level of corrosion, not the guest that was the way the Drew book did it or whichever. It's really just sitting down with the people who come from a diverse background, because if you look at their trainers, we come from every major company that was out there, and saying, okay, this is how I present this, how would you present that, and have them feedback. And then eventually, over time, that feedback has developed the, the real framework of what this program is. Well, we're talking about training. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the governance of the AWT. You and I were both presidents of that great organization. Very humbled to, to, to be a past president when I look at all the people that are on that list. Bruce, why did you become president? What was that journey like? They tried to get me to become president early on when it was just starting out, and I refused to uh, because... Basically, I couldn't afford the time away from my company. I wouldn't have survived. When I got to the point where I could survive, I got a phone call from Mr. Malloy, and James said, it's only an hour a month. <laughs> and I finally said, well, I'll try. And I was voted in, got on the board, and that's when we started the TRTM and a lot of the other things. Uh, and at the end of your first year, you decide if you want to move on to the chairs, as you know, and the governance. And I wasn't asked to do that, but I was given other projects. And I found out later on that Mr. McNamara and Mr. Malloy had decided since I was a, uh, how can I put it, a mule and would work very hard. If they could stall me going into the chairs one year, they get six full years of making me work my backside off versus five. Once you get into the organization especially when you get into those levels, you learn more than you give. And it helped me tremendously with my own company, with my own life. Uh, I met some fantastic people that, again, networking is what we really do in our lives. And the six years went by very quickly. Yeah, thinking about it, the AWT board was probably the first mastermind that I was ever a member of. We would get together afterwards and we would talk about each other's issues and we would just lean into each other and, and give each other advice. And then when you're off the board, that kind of went away. Um, I never thought about it before now, but I, I think that was my first mastermind experience. I just didn't have that language around it. I would say so. But when I joined the board, it was very cut and dry. You showed up for the board meeting. It was done by strict rules. And it lasted 10, 12 hours, and then he went home. And so when I became president, uh, I looked at that and said, this is not working for me. Once you start the official meeting, it's got to be an official meeting. Why don't we sit down before the meeting, go through all our issues with dinner, a couple beers, whatever, discuss it, relax so that we're prepared for the next day, and then we get the work done, which is, again, a mastermind concept. When I proposed it, our management group, which is not the one we have now, 
uh, looked at me like I had four heads and was out of my mind. But evidently, that's what they're still doing. And it worked out very well because we took the actual board meeting down to about six hours, get it done, work on the real issues, not two hours of discussion on something that we could talk about Friday night and work out instead of doing it at the board meeting. Well, when I was on the board, we still took that concept and we would get together. I think we called it the pre-board meeting. And when I first started, we had binders and then they would ship uh, CDs out and that had all the PDFs and different documents on it. And then we started using electronic where you could just go up into the cloud and get it. But I remember my very first board meeting, I got a cellophane wrapped binder. And uh, of course, I'm reading that as diligently as I, I could. And then we go to this pre-board meeting and the, the president at the time who was Chuck, had just outlined all the things that we really needed to make sure we understood before going into that meeting. And I can't imagine us ever having anywhere near the same conversation had we not prepared in that way. It would have all been about talking about what we needed to talk about instead of weighing in on what we already knew based on our findings. That was all I did behind it. Well, thank you for doing that. I am pretty sure they are still doing that today. You know, uh, Bruce, what are what are some big things that you've seen change with the the AWT? You know, you're one of the second round of members, so you're probably member number what nine or something like that. Well, not that that good. Probably like eighteen or twenty. But okay. When we first started, the only reason we started is Bhopal India caused the loss of liability insurance. The prices were astronomical. Independents were operating without any liability insurance. And this was uh, a problem that we all feared. So the original group got together to do offshore insurance. They brought us in for the same reason. We were looking at getting liability insurance that we could afford. And other than that, we knew we had to build a structure for an organization to justify what we were doing. A bunch of people just trying to figure it out day to day. We had nothing you have today. We had no website. We had no books. We had, there was no training. There was nothing. And you look at it today. Today, we have one of the best training programs in the industry, and it's not a training program. There's six of them. Today, we have a website that has more information than probably any place else in the world. We have the TRTM, which is constantly being up, updated and, and uh, it is the first generic training and technical manual in the industry, not written with my point of view, but everyone's point of view. And the original four authors came from four separate majors, which makes it even more cohesive. We have reference material, assets, people, uh, numerous people with talent and, and experience. If you went for an, uh, to talk to an independent 34 years ago, they either had a couple of years with a major company or just kind of fell into this. Today, you've got people with, that are independents that have been doing this for over 30 years. And they've got an established company, established reputation. It's, it's very, very, very different. What does the future hold for Bruce Ketrick Sr.? Oh, I'm running out of future. I'm getting to the point where I want to travel and I want to say, you know what? It's your turn now. I'm very quickly getting to that point. I'm 71 years old. I've been doing this since I was 22. The future is I've had a good transition with my company. I'm, I'm still here because I guess they uh, feel the old guy should be stuck in a room and just you know, feed him and don't, don't hurt him. But uh, I'm getting to the point where I'd, I'd like to just back, start backing off some and, and go see what I can of the world now that COVID has become a little less toxic than it was before. You mentioned transitioning your company. Right now, there is a lot of that going on. A lot of people are passing the company to either their children, another employee, maybe they're selling it to somebody else. You've gone through this process very successfully. I know it's successful because BJ, your son, says it went great. And he wouldn't have said that if you guys didn't figure it out. How did you figure it out? What, what advice do you have for people that are going through that process right now? Well, the first thing is you have to know that there's someone coming in that is competent, obviously. Because for independence, these are our babies. These are our children. 
We grew them from nothing. So there's, there's a real investment into this company. And you don't want to give your child to anybody. I was very fortunate to have two of my three children had an interest in this early. I got involved. I made them start at the bottom. They worked their way up. They're very talented. Uh, thank God for their mother. That's probably why they're very talented. And uh, they had an interest in running the company. And I'd always told them, you have to decide what you want to do before I'm 60. Because I'm eventually going to want to get out. And there's only three options to get out. One, transfer it to your children. Two, sell it to an employee. Three, sell it to somebody else. And you need a few years to position your company for that to, to get the most out of it. So I said, you have to make the decision. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. I didn't do this for them to come in and have a second generation. I did this because I needed a job and started something. So I had a job and then eventually ended up with 70 people that work for me now that have jobs. That was the first step. The second step is you have to recognize they are not going to do it the way you do it. The biggest failures and transitions is the person that starts the company feels, I made it here because of this is how I did it. And the reality is probably true, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. And the most difficult thing to do is to step back. You have to, when you transition to somebody, allow them to be the leader. You can't constantly step in and reassert your power. You can't step in and say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way in front of employees. Kind of like raising kids. You never argue in front of the kids. You argue in private. And you work it out. The kids see a solid front. It has to be the same way. My son is not me. He does a lot of things far better than I ever would dream to do. And some things that I consider important, he does not. Okay. So, how do you do that? You fill it in with a competent person to do that part that he doesn't want to do. And again, the hard part is to sit back and allow them to do it. And it's been five years, and he's grown the company dramatically. So, we've been successful because we had the right person. And I was able to swallow enough ego to step back and let him be that person. And that's very hard. Very, very difficult at times. And I think that's where a lot of these transitions fail. If you have an employee that fits that and you want to sell it to your employee, it doesn't have to be your child. It has to be that person that fits. And you still have to go through the same transition. The other option is you sell it, you get cash, you walk away. That would have been my last resort because my people are very important to me and I want them taken care of. I've got people who have been with me for 25 years, 30 years. And if I just sold it to someone, I relinquish my ability to protect them. If I sell it to a good employee or I sell it to my children as we did, they see the culture. They see how it worked. They protect those same employees. And those employees then, who've been with for a while, just transfer their loyalties to that new president and bring that experience with them to help that president go along. And that's worked very well for us. But Scott Stewart, our sales manager, has been with him for 31 years. And... He's, he's got another five or six years in him, at least, if not 10. And his transition to BJ, because he knew him as a teenager, has been, not only do I recognize you as my boss, but I'm here to support you and protect you. And that all that experience, he uses to make sure BJ succeeds. So we've been very fortunate. That's great advice. I know you've helped a lot of people just telling that story. So, Bruce, thinking all the way back to the beginning of your career in 1974 to now, what would you say your biggest lesson learned is? The biggest problem you have is you feel you're not adequate. So, you go out and you try too hard. People recognize you try too hard, and people recognize you're comfortable and confident yourself. If you come into a situation you don't know, be patient, listen, tell that individual, I don't know that right now, but I will the next time I see you, and then bring it back. If you overcommit because you don't have patience, you will fail. So I think that's my biggest lesson. When I was younger, I wasn't as good at it. I got a lot better after I got hit in the head a couple times with a two-by-four. Well, Bruce... 
You've done very well so far in the interview, but it's anybody's game because we are going to the lightning round where the point values are triple. So are you ready for the lightning round? Oh, absolutely not, but let's do it. All right, you're going to do great. So if you had the ability to go back in time and talk to your former self on your very first day in 1974 as a water treater, what would you tell yourself? To listen a great deal more, to look at the people that you were surrounded by, which I was fortunate to be with some very talented people, and ask more questions. I was very fortunate to start the technical department with some experienced, very talented people. And being young, I just wanted to do things. I really wish I had asked more and listened more. Bruce, I know you're an avid reader. What are some of your favorite books to read? And then specifically, what are some of your favorite water treatment reference books? Well, my water treatment reference books are probably a lot you don't have. I have uh, the original formulation books that we put together uh, with Perlin. One of my favorite ones is Paths of Formulation by Bob Cavano, which I've been told is being updated, but I'm not sure. But it gives all the basics of all the raw materials. And I still use the TRTM. That is, you know, by far my favorite. I'll go back. I've got the Betts book and the Nalco book and the Drew book and all. I'm, I have the original permuted book on permuted specs and Bruner specs. Oh, wow. Uh, which I'll use because they have data in them, engineering data that isn't printed anymore. So those are a couple of my favorites. I asked Jay Farmery that question, and he referenced the Leo Pincus book, which I had never heard of before. And oh, I can't really? tell you how many times I've referenced that since it's become part of my library. That is a tremendous book. I have that. I've got a lot of the cooling water books that were done by many of the Legionella people today. And one of my favorite books is The Corn Dioxide by Simpson. Well, there you go, Nation. A totally selfish question. I want to know what needs to become part of my library. So thank you for helping me out with that, Bruce. Next question. Who plays Bruce Ketrick Sr. in a movie? I have no idea. I, really, I looked at that and I said, you got to find a tall, fat, bald guy, but I don't know who it would be. Yeah, I don't know if I have one, too. Um, no, I don't know if I would say body body status. I don't know. That's a tough one. Did you ask around the office? Oh, no. I wouldn't ask that. The response is not to get back since we have a very relaxed situation here. I, I, I enjoy the fact that the people that work here in the office can express their opinion to me without any fear because that's the only way they, they can be accepted. So I'm a little afraid to ask that question because of what I might get back because they would be free about explaining it. I don't know why, but John Lithgow comes to mind. Okay. I wouldn't argue with that one. So I've never done this before, but we're going to do uh, this on social media. So we're going to post something in our social media channels. We're going to have a picture of you. We're going to reference this episode, and we're going to ask people what they think who should play you. So we'll see how that plays out. I have insulted you that badly, have I? <laughs> Never done it before. We will see how it works out. All right, my last question, Bruce. If you could talk with anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Someone you probably never heard of, Paul Marin Sr., which is my wife's grandfather. He was a self-educated engineer that created the Golden Eye, which was a bombsite used in World War II that made the U.S. Air Force or Army Corps before Air Force uh, much more effective. He was uh, an inventor and a creator and unfortunately died before I, I had a chance to meet Pat. And uh, for all the stories I've heard about him and different things like that, you know, I'm a creator, and it just would fascinate me to have been able to meet him. Well, Bruce, I'm fascinated that I was able to meet you. You've helped me more than I can tell you with my career personally, professionally. You've always been there for me. You've helped me with issues that I've had throughout my, in, in, throughout my career, personal issues, questions that, that I've had. You, you've always been there for me. And I want to thank you not only for coming on this podcast, but for always being there for me. Well, I, I appreciate that, but you deserve a lot more. <laughs> Learn how to take a compliment. That's hard. It's hard. 
Thanks for coming on the show, Bruce. It is absolutely my pleasure. Scaling Up Nation, I cannot tell you how much I owe that man. He has just been an incredible mentor to me. When uh, I started training with the Association of Water Technologies, Bruce definitely took me under his wing. I really think he wanted to get rid of math, and that's why he jumped at that chance to get me to start teaching math. But it has just been incredible to be working on the education committee with Bruce. Of course, Bruce has taught me so many things about organizing that, about making sure that all the presentations stay relevant. Uh, Something that Bruce and I do is we review every single training presentation every single year. We also try to coach all the other trainers and make sure that they have everything that they need. We even try to give them some extra tools so they feel even more comfortable as a presenter, as a trainer. And then when we're on site, we are working behind the scenes to make sure that the trainers have everything that they need, uh, equipment's working properly. Of course, there's an IT team there, but we're kind of the intermediaries between that. And it's just nonstop as soon as that technical training starts that we're working behind the scenes. And I've just thoroughly enjoyed being in the trenches with Bruce at every single technical training. And being involved like that, it really allowed me to learn so much. I've been involved with technical training for well over a decade. I have seen so many of the other presentations by the other presenters. And every time I see something I learn something new. I've seen these presentations dozens of times. I have reviewed these presentations dozens of times. And every time I do that, I learn something new. I might learn a different nuance of something. I might learn that there's a different way to look at something. There's a different way to explain something. So if you are ever in a situation where you think you know everything there is to know about a topic, I don't think you know the topic well enough. And I can't tell you how many people told me that they went to a technical training that the Association of Water Technologies put on once, been there, did that, maybe they even owned the t-shirt. Folks, that is not something you can go to that is one and done. This is something that every single time you go, you're going to find out something more that you didn't know. And because of the extra experiences you had between the last time you went and this current time that you went, you're going to be listening to the information in a totally different way. So my advice is, is that you go as often to any training that you can and continue to go I know for myself, I continue to learn every time I hear any of our presenters speak. So with that, always check the AWT website, or if the AWT is not the type of water treatment that you do, I'm sure there's an association that has some sort of training. And I will say that if you really want to understand the industry that you are in, Figure out a way that you can train others within the industry. When you become a teacher rather than just a student, it changes your whole mindset. You're now able to take the information that you're responsible for learning and turn it into being responsible for teaching, and it just changes how you look at everything that you are trying to learn. And a tip that I can give you that I learned a very long time ago is if I'm trying to learn something new, I try to get an opportunity to teach that something new as quickly as possible. So for those of you out there that are sending people to a training and you're wondering, is my money really going towards something worthwhile? Are they actually sitting in class? Are the people actually getting something out of it? Well, don't wonder, assign them. They're going to train something when they come back to the rest of the organization. And I promise that that will change their entire view of being at that training. Now, if you're trying to get somebody to be convinced to pay for you to go to a particular type of training, 
then throw that out there. Say, I want to train this item that I am going to learn, and I really want to find out more information on this item. So when we come back, I want to schedule the entire company to get together and I'm going to train them on this. I promise that will be a much easier conversation to try to convince somebody to pay for you to go to whatever training it is that we are considering. Nation, take it from me, that has worked and so many times when people have come up to me and said, my boss just won't pay for something, they don't see the value. When they approach it from that standpoint that I want to teach what I learn, more than often that person will come around and says, yes, you can go to that training. So figure out what training you wanna go to and prepare yourself to come back and train. Hey folks, if you have something that you want to hear on this podcast, please let me know. Go to our show ideas page at scalinguph2o.com and let me know what that is. You can do that in one of two ways. One, you can go to our show ideas page and you can type out what your idea is, or you can select the send voicemail function and you can record your voice asking your question to me and I will get that answered on the air. Folks, make sure you pull out your calendars and mark down the first full week of October. That's gonna be October 3rd through 7th, and that is Industrial Water Week. This is year six of Industrial Water Week. It is really taking off. We have an entire week to celebrate how awesome industrial water treatment is. We're going to celebrate with you by offering an episode each and every day of the Scaling Up H2O podcast for you to enjoy. Of course, we start out with pre-treatment Monday, followed by boiler Tuesdays, cooling Wednesdays, wastewater Thursdays, and then careers on Friday. Folks, if there is something that is out there that deserves celebration, it is the industrial water treatment world, and I hope that you mark your calendars and we can all celebrate that together. I also hope that you mark your calendars for next Friday when you're going to get a brand new episode of Scaling Up H2O. Have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, so many people that I talk to want to join the Rising Tide Mastermind, but they're concerned about being able to commit one hour a week for the mastermind calls. Folks, I have to tell you, when you experience that hour, you realize that that is the power hour that changes every other hour that you will experience that week. If we keep doing the same things, we will keep doing the same results. And that one hour a week allows you to get out of the day-to-day -day so you can work on your day-to-day. -day. Do something different. Find out about the Rising Tide Mastermind by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.